Welcome to Sports Pages, a new podcast from Joe, which digs into the stories behind some of the greatest sports books ever written. I'm Simon Clancy, and each week I'll be interviewing the authors of those books to find out about the proposal, the process, and what it felt like to have that first copy in their hands. My guest this week is the author of Slaying the Badger, the tale of one of sports' most extraordinary rivalries, Greg LeMond versus Bernardino at the 1986 Tour de France. Teammates, rivals, enemies, a race that plays out like a three-week-long psychological drama with extraordinary levels of subterfuge. Richard Moore, welcome to Sports Pages. How are you? I'm very well, Simon. Thank you for having me on. It's a great honour. No problem. Before we get to the book, take me back to that moment, age 12, when you got your first racing bike, the Harry Quinn. A life-changing moment for you? You know an awful lot here. (laughs) The Harry Quinn, yeah. Um, I guess, well, with with hindsight, it was a life-changing moment. And not that I could have known at the time how central the bike would would become to my life and working life as well later on. But cycling was something that really interested me. And my dad was a, a very keen cyclist. I'd always sort of looked at him on his bike and fancied a bike like that myself one day. And that, that was the first proper racing bike I got. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was the start of a beautiful relationship in a way. You talk about your father there. Was he the reason that you got into the Tour de France? Because I know you went as a fair bit as a fan before you even got into journalism, 1990, 98, 2003 and 04. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my dad watched a lot of little cycling there was on telly. It was on World of Sport for a sort of half-hour highlights package every Saturday morning. And I think it was in 1984, the first time I was really aware of the Tour de France, and my dad watching it on Saturday morning, and Robert Miller winning. Here was a, a Scottish cyclist performing in this incredible race. And I became very interested in, in Robert Miller at that point. And we were talking about this the other day, and a few of us just, we don't in Scotland have many world-class sports people. And when somebody emerges like Andy Murray, they tend to, to get an awful lot of support from people who are not even necessarily into that sport. Robert Miller was kind of the same in the 80s. Mm. So those cycling was in my family and I was naturally drawn to the sport. It was Robert Miller as well that really was my portal into the sport. And I became really hungry for information about the sport because there was so little of it about, you know, before the internet. You couldn't really find out an awful lot about it. It existed in a foreign language, literally. And I remember I, I think I stole a, a book from the school library, The Fabulous World of Cycling, with um, all these amazing photographs in it. I've still got this book actually to this day. That was just something that I read and reread and reread and reread and would know the pages off the heart. And 86 was the first year Tour de France was broadcast nightly on Channel 4. And that was a real kind of breakthrough moment to be able to follow the, the race properly. I'd hate to think what the library finds would be now on that book. Well, as I said that, instantly regretting saying it because Lim High School, if you're out there and you want your book back, it's, it's pretty pretty knackered now, this copy. I'm just pulling it off my bookshelf as I speak. Here it is, pages almost falling out, covers gone, but yeah, just so familiar, these pictures, and so exciting, glamorous at the time, because again, the, the pictures on the telly were, were kind of grainy, you know, because this was a sport that happened in the Alps and the Pyrenees, yeah. and, and the, the commentary was not clear, you know, there was not a clear line. It did sound like Phil Liggett was phoning it down a pretty ropey telephone line. And all of that just added to the, the mystique around it, I felt. You'd started racing yourself, hadn't you, with the Edinburgh Road Club when you were 13. You rode for Scotland at the Commonwealth Games in 1998. But I wonder, and I suppose I think of someone like Paul Kimmage, whether or not you feel like it was easier to make the transition from riding into writing about riding because you'd been there and because you'd lived it. 
Yeah, although I hadn't lived it to the same extent as as Paul Kimmage, uh, who was a you know professional with a French team rode the Tour de France. I was several rungs below that on the ladder. I, I don't know. I mean, it definitely helped open doors in the mainstream media. The newspapers in Scotland were interested in the fact when I was writing about cycling, which wasn't that often at the time, but they were interested in the fact that I'd ridden for Scotland and they did feel that that added something to my credentials, I suppose. But I don't know. I guess it was an advantage because I, I knew what it was like to race a bike, but I, I also felt I didn't really have an awful lot of insight into what it was like to race a bike on the continent mm. in the biggest races in the world. So to the book then, when did you come up with the idea for Slaying the Badger? How did it come about? I think that it came about, I was I did a book on Robert Miller in search of Robert Miller. That's my first book that I worked on in, in 2006. And that really kind of plunged me into the 80s and had me reliving that period from, I guess, the early to the late 80s, which was Robert Miller's pomp. And in the course of that research and, and reliving that era, it was the 86 tour that, as I say, was the first one I watched in full. And it was the one that really grabbed me, you know, by the scruff of the neck, partly because of Bernard Eno, who was such a compelling kind of central figure in that tour. And then he retired after it. That was his last tour. And I was fascinated by him. And I suppose in, in researching Robert Miller's story, Eno was the character that loomed over the whole sport at that time. Very domineering kind of presence. And so I, I did my first book in search of Robert Miller with HarperCollins Publishers. And they were keen to for me to do another book, and I, they were asking for ideas. And I, I worked up this proposal to do a, a book on the 86 tour, and they actually turned it down because, well, the main reason was there wasn't a British central character in it. So they felt that for the British market, it wouldn't work. Sort of ironic because it, it's become probably the best selling of all the cycling books that I've mm. done uh, over time. But in the meantime, did another book for HarperCollins and managed to work up this proposal and, and find a different publisher for it. So I was kind of working away on it, but I was also aware that it was it was covering similar ground in a way to In Search of Robert Miller in that period. But, you know, it was a different story, and it was a story focused on this one race. Mm. And that idea also appealed to me, the idea of, of building a story, building a book around one, one race and having enough background and context that when, by the time you got to the start line, you really understood the two central characters and what was at stake in the battle that would play out over the three weeks. And for those that haven't read the book, the Badger is obviously Bernardino, five-time winner of the Tour de France, one of the, the legends of the sport, and who'd pledged his sort of unwavering support, hadn't he, to his young teammate, Greg LeMond, the American, in helping him to win his first tour in 86, except it just doesn't quite work out like that, does it? No, I mean, that 85 tour is a sort of prelude to 86, of course, 85... Again, I remember being quite aware of that tour and following what was happening in it, as difficult as that was at the time, because Eno was in the yellow jersey. He was leading the race. He was very strong that year. Greg LeMond was his young American teammate, and Eno was the badger. He was this fearsome kind of character, handsome, kind of brooding, menacing. People were scared of him. Greg LeMond was this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, very fresh-faced, very, very, very talented young guy who came from a non-cycling country, a non-traditional country. So he was he was a real breath of fresh air in all kinds of ways. He looked different. He, he was in, in a lot of ways the first modern cyclist, really. And Eno was very much of the old school. And in 85, Le Monde was his teammate at La Vie Claire, which was this team funded by Bernard Tappy, very controversial and colourful 
French businessman and entrepreneur who went on to to own um, Olympic Marseille. Went to prison. Went to politics. He was an actor. He was a singer. He was. He did everything. It's a sort of French Donald Trump in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, Le Monde in '85 obviously was at the service of, of his older teammate Eno, and his job there was to help Eno win his fifth tour. Midway through the race, Eno crashed in Saint Etienne. He didn't wear helmets in those days. His face was very bloodied and battered, and he crossed the line looking pretty bad. and And that really brought about a period of Decline for it, you know, in the second half of the race. His, his health was failing him. He had got bronchitis. He had these two black eyes from the crash. He looked like a boxer, you know, who'd been 12 rounds in Muhammad Ali. He looked, he looked in a terrible way. And he was really just hanging on to the race lead. And Le Monde, in those moments, really had to sacrifice his own chances to, to make sure, you know, did make it across the line. It was very clear that Le Monde was stronger in the final week or so of that race. And the deal that they struck at the time was that Eno would pay him back in 86, that Eno would come back in 86 for his final tour and he would ride fully in support of Le Monde. And this was a promise apparently made and that was, you know, the, the context to 86. And then what happened over the three weeks well, it was pretty clear that Eno had no intention of uh, fulfilling that promise. I'll stir things up to help Greg win and I'll have fun doing it. That's a promise was his quote from 85, and he sort of stuck to it. He really did stir things up, didn't he? Well, he did stir things up, that's for sure, but <laughs> it was fantastically entertaining. It's what made it so great. You know, it's possible to have sympathy with Le Mans, but also be grateful to Eno, who turned that, that race into this intriguing, uncertain battle between them. It could have been a really boring tour because they were on a team that was... We think now of Team Sky or Team Enios being the, the dominant team at Tour de France, but really nothing compared to La Vie Claire in 86. They had so many cards to play. They won so many stages with different riders. They had, I think, four riders in the top ten. I could be wrong. And it was such a fascinating psychological insight into the pair of them because Eno did have fun. He was attacking whenever he felt like it. And, of course, Le Monde, in that situation, if he's got a teammate up the road... He's kind of stuck. He's in a bind. He can't really counter-attack behind because he will possibly or probably take rivals up to his teammate. And racing with someone like Eno didn't really suit his style because Eno wasn't going to rein himself in. He did attack. That did put Lamont constantly on the back foot. And Lamont really was at a loss to know what to do. And, you know, when I researched this book and found all this footage, there's some incredible footage of Le Mans really, really kind of losing his mind almost, not knowing what to do to counter his teammate. The, the two stages where this really came to the fore, although it happened right from the start, and even on flat stages, Eno was playing games with Le Mans, but when they got to the Pyrenees, there were two big stages in the Pyrenees, and on day one, Eno attacked with Pedro Delgado, a Spanish rider who was, who was an outsider, really. He had stage 12 to Poe, wasn't it? That's right, to Poe. And in those days, he didn't have race radios or anything. So Lamont didn't know that Eno had attacked until Eno was about four minutes up the road. And Eno that night, he was second on the stage to Delgado, but he took a big overall lead going into the next day, which was the, the really big day in the, in the Pyrenees. And, you know, Lamont was, was at this point thinking, this is not really living up to the promise to help me. I don't really know what Eno's doing here. This is this is all very strange. And on day two in the Pyrenees, Eno attacked again, really early on, in the yellow jersey, on his own. And again, it forces Le Mans behind to follow 
the rivals, but not to lead any kind of chase. And Eno races into a lead again of four, four and a half minutes. And Le Mans now is looking at, there's no way that he can win the Tour if at the end of the day, Eno's got a lead of about eight or nine minutes. Mm. But then Eno completely cracks. I mean, completely blows up. And Le Mans comes back with the other riders. And it's a really interesting moment there because they catch Eno going through Luchon, beautiful spa town at the foot of Super Bagnier, which was the climb up to the finish of that stage. Even then, Le Mans doesn't take the initiative. And it's not criticism of Le Mans, it's just the way he was. He put his teammate Andy Hampson on the attack at that point, on the sort of lower slopes of that climb, and then followed him and bridged up to him and dropped him and, and won the stage. And that was the beginning of his fight back. Though Eno did actually hold the yellow jersey that day, he managed to somehow make it to the finish, I think, probably. I'm not sure the footage exists of how Eno got to the top of that climb, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the French favourite in the French race. Um, he miraculously made it to the finish and managed to do enough, just enough, to hold on to the yellow jersey. But the balance of power there was swinging slightly back to Le Mans, but there was still a long way to go, and Le Mans was basically having a breakdown and then finish in Super Bagnier. Le Mans, although he'd won the stage, was just beside himself with anxiety and mm. stress and, and fear about what was going to still come. I want to get to that Super Bagnier stage in a sec, but there's a great quote that you use in the prologue of the book, actually, from, from Rolling Stone, when they write, in the midst of competition, Eno attempted to snatch victory like a furious, clawing rodent. He acted not only for himself, but for a nation horrified that its great race might be hijacked by an American outlaw. The bit about Le Mans' nationality is very important, isn't it, especially when it comes to the Tour de France? Yeah, it is. It's really interesting because he had a French name, Le Mans, but he didn't. He wasn't French. His ancestry was actually Scottish. Weirdly, the, the name is a bit of a mystery, but it's hard to really understand now because cycling is such an international sport now. But back then, it was the sport of the French, the Belgians, the Italians, the Spanish, and the Dutch. That was it, really. And there were beginning to be riders from other countries coming over from Australia, there were quite a few from Australia, the UK, you know, there were three or four. And Le Mans was one of the first Americans, he was really the second American to make it in, you know, continental Europe. And yeah, I guess the sport was pretty parochial at the time. Eno was the great French hero. Yeah, Le Mans was a real outlier. And his nationality was not something that would have helped him at all, that's for sure. But that Rolling Stone feature that you mentioned, I quote from that quite a lot, and they're very juicy quotes in, this, in the story, but I'm not sure all of them were entirely accurate. You know, I think the reporter came and, you know, really played up that idea of, of Le Mans as, as the cowboy riding the tour on his own with no help. That wasn't entirely accurate because... On his team, yeah, most of the riders were certainly riding in support of Eno, but Andy Hampson was a fellow American, Steve Bauer was a Canadian, so he, he did have allies in his team. And he was also you know, very highly rated by his boss of that team, Bernard Tappy, who had put him on this huge salary, and um, this million-dollar contract over three years, which was unheard of in cycling. And yeah, and there's one moment, which I'm sure we'll get to on, on Alp Duez, mm. where his nationality really felt might turn against him in a... In a potentially disastrous way. You tell the story, as the Grand Depart gets closer, that there is this pact between the two of them that seems to dissipate almost hourly with everybody telling Eno sort of to ride to win, including the French president who told him to ride your own race. 
clearly, you know, because winning a sixth Tour de France, as he would have done, would have set a new record. So there was clear sentiment behind Eno to crush that pact and, uh, and ride to win. Yeah, I mean, I still, to this day, don't really know what was going through Eno's head. And, you know, I, I did go to interview him for the, the book, and he's always, you know, told the same story about how he raced and how, how he wanted to race in such a way that Le Mans would be celebrated as a worthy champion. And you'd have to say that he achieved that. It looked certainly to everybody watching that Eno was trying to win. But ultimately he didn't win, and Le Mans did win, and the achievement of winning is considered all the greater for the, the manner of the victory. Eno didn't lie down. He, Le Mans did actually beat him. And that, that makes a huge difference. I actually interviewed Greg Le Mans last week about something else. Uh, we were talking about the 1992, which was his third win. Yeah. And he really, he places that quite far below 86 and 89, purely because of the rider that he beat. So he was measuring his tour wins by who he had to beat, which I thought was really interesting. But as, as for Eno and his motivations, I think one of the key things to understand about the pair of them is that Le Mans was a real thinker. And I mentioned that he was very calculated. And that kind of calculation that he brought to his bike racing could be a great strength, but also a huge weakness because he could overthink things. Eno was not and is not a thinker. He is somebody who lives in the moment. And he's very he's very comfortable in his own skin, you know. And, you know, he had this, this other great quote from Eno, was, as long as I breathe, I attack. And there was a sort of animalistic quality to Eno. He just acted in the moment. Whatever his the impulse was would drive his next action. And I'm not sure there was a great deal of thought into his strategy in 86. If I sound sure of myself, it's because I am. It's one of his great quotes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that sums him up perfectly, doesn't it? Yeah, he, he's very direct, very blunt, completely unapologetic for you know anything. He tells the same story about 86 now as he did back then. He's not, he doesn't get upset by what people say. He's interesting because I guess he's unusual in that most, most people have some kind of sensitivity to what other people say or think. Eno never appeared to have any at all. That quote that you've just read out, that perfectly sums him up. And he didn't feel the need to justify himself to anybody at all. Eno just did whatever he pleased. And I think for me, as, a, as an impression of 13-year-old watching him, he was, that kind of confidence was quite appealing. I mean, mesmerizing in a way. He was competing in such a tough sport that involved so much suffering. And yet Eno did seem to do it with a degree of confidence, self-assurance, and a total belief in his own ability that any of us who rode a bike would have loved to have had a fraction of that. You know, there are these great pictures of Eno riding along in the yellow jersey, hands off the bars, reading a newspaper, and things like this. You know, he. One of the questions I asked him when I went to see him was a silly question in a way, but was it easy for you? <laughs> That's how it looked at times. It looked like the sport was easy to him. And I think there's a sort of bluff in that, but if you can, as a bike racer, make it look easy, that half your rivals are defeated already. Yeah. You touched a little bit upon some of the stages, but I think it's important to go through them just because it underlines just how often he went on the attack. I mean, stage six, he had a little sort of dig, didn't yeah. he? And then there was the individual time trial, stage nine, where uh, Le Mans punctured in Nantes. Uh, stage 12, mm. you mentioned uh, in the Pyrenees to Poe when he attacked with Jean-Francois Bernard and, and Le Mans lost sort of over four and a half minutes. And 
And after the stage, he was Greg was heard shouting at his dad, "God damn it, Dad! I'm going to finish second again." His his the, the psychological warfare had begun, and his paranoia was really starting to kick in, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. I mean, he was prone to that, Greg, throughout his career. He was a warrior, you know, and Anino wasn't. Anino, he was obviously very aware of that, and he, he just couldn't relate to it. I think he found it completely baffling. He couldn't understand lots of things about Greg Lamond. Lamond always did have his family around him. His wife was always there. His father was often there. His father acted as his manager. He had this sort of network around him. Whereas, you know, you, know, you would never have seen Eno's wife anywhere near a white race. He was just from a different tradition. And Lamond, again, I mentioned the money, but that was another way in which Lamond brought new attitudes into the sport. His wife was part of who he was. She was part of Team Lamond in, in a lot of ways. And that was, that was really revolutionary at the time. But he must have known what he was doing for Le Mans' state of mind. And there was almost this sense, I think, I mean, looking back now, that Eno's attitude might well have been, if Le Mans wins this tour, he's proved his greatness and he's a deserving winner. And if he doesn't, then he didn't deserve to win it in the first place. Yeah. And there's some truth in that. You touched on the Super Bannier stage where Eno attacked on the descent of the, uh, of the Tourmalet. <laughs> Then he attacked again in the wind on stage 16 to gap, uh, leaving mm. Le Monde behind. And Le Monde actually threatened to quit the race that night, didn't he? And, and Eno was kind of incredulous. What's his problem? Are his legs hurting? It might be just as well if he quits, if he doesn't want to win the race anymore. Yeah, I mean, you just picture Eno kind of sitting at the at the table at dinner drinking, drinking a glass or two of red wine and maybe feet up on the table, just kind of perplexed and scratching his head at, why his teammate was whining so much. It sounds that sounds very harsh on Le Mans, but I mean, a really formidable opponent, you know, and especially if he's in your own team, because you know, he'd have been confronted with him all the time. And I can imagine there was this really awkward atmosphere in the team. And and over the course of the tour, the team did become split in two camps. Well, the joke is that they were there were the French, you know, gathered around Eno. There was Le Monde with Steve Bauer and Andy Hampson. Then there were a couple of yeah, Swiss who were Swiss neutral. riders in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, but that that did actually happen over the, the course of the race. And you know, Andy Hampson is a, a couple of years younger than Le Monde, and he went on to win the, the Giro d'Italia in '88. A very talented rider as well, but a very a very nice, uncomplicated, very pleasant, well brought up guy, Andy Hampson. And I think he found the situation absolutely horrible and horrible. And he found that very unsettling. It was testament, I suppose, to the strength of the Lavie Claire camp and the team that they were able to stay together in a way, wasn't it? Because each night there seemed to be sort of arguments. And I, I know that one night sort of Bernard Tapie was up until sort of 4 a.m. trying to calm both sides down. It must have been an absolute nightmare. The racing itself must have been the easy part. It was dealing with the personalities in the evening that was the biggest issue. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds awful. And one of the things in the team was that really, Eno was in charge. You know, he, he was a writer, but he was the dominant personality in that team. Their sports director was a guy called Paul Coakley, a Swiss, who was very sort of cookie professor type. He wasn't, he wasn't a leader of men. He was very into the theory of training and, and strategy and tactics and so on, but he was not charismatic at all and you know a lot of people who were on the team and around the team said that you know you know walked all over him i did go and see him for the book as well i found him very unusual quirky eccentric and it's hard to imagine him really having much authority over certainly you know and the rest of the team 
Bernard Tappy, as the owner of the team and this successful businessman, he was the, the man calling the shots too, but he wasn't on the whole race. So when he came in, he tried, I think, to have these clear the air tops and so on. But again, he also would have been seduced by Eno. You know, it was Eno that brought him into the sport in the first place. Mm. But Eno, Eno held all the power in that setup. And Le Mans was just trying to have his voice heard, but in that context, in that environment, it was very, very difficult. Le Mans finally took the lead for good on, on that stage 17, uh, and there was that f- amazing finish on Outdoors the next day as the pair sort of attacked and left everybody behind, and they sort of came together in the final few hundred metres for, I suppose, some of the most iconic shots perhaps in the history mm. of cycling with, their, with Le Mans putting his arm around... Eno and then the two of them sort of chatting and smiling and then and then sort of holding hands up to the line as if they were sort of playing nice. And I always remember Cathy Lamond being interviewed live by Phil Liggett as they came to the finish. And her relief seemed to be incredibly sort of palpable that the, the two of them were playing along. Yeah, I mean that's a very famous uh, bit of commentary with, with Phil Liggett um, being joined in the commentary booth by Cathy Lamond and she's reacting to what she sees, which is the two of them riding up together, having distanced everybody else, and then crossing the line hand in hand, but with Eno doing just enough to make sure that his wheels are slightly ahead of Le Mans yeah. as they cross the line, so he gets the stage win. The previous day is a much less known stage, and again, I wrote about that in the book, because that, that was the day Le Mans took the other jersey, and Eno was having problems with his knee at that point, and I wrote about it in the book, and I then got an email after the book came out from Eric Zimmerman, who was a Swiss rider, who was third in the end, so he was the closest rival to them. And he got away with Le Mans on that day, and he you know, he added sort of more layers of complexity to it, because he said that mm. on that day that, that the two of them got away, it was actually Le Mans who attacked his teammate, you know, who was in the middle jersey, which is, which is a no-no as well. And Le Mans attacked and really drove that move, uh, which is not straight out of the, the tactical kind of handbook. And he, Zimmerman said in this email that when the team car eventually caught up with Le Mans, he was asked, what on earth are you doing? So, you know, he said, this is a black hole of that Tour de France that nobody really wants to look at. So I guess the question is, at one point in that race, did Le Mans actually do to Eno what Eno had been doing to him? Possibly. Yeah. But the following day, it looked like they buried the hatchet and they were friends again. And Cathy Le Mans and, you know, actually said that, they're friends. But the truth was, was quite different, and she didn't even know that herself at the time. You know, as Le Mans puts it, Eno that day was really struggling and was begging Le Mans to slow down and to wait for her. Le Mans was also worried about his safety on Alpdiaz. There were lots of fans there. That there was this, this story in the media about the battle, and he was sure that the fans, most of whom were French, would have taken Eno's side in that. And so he was worried that if he went up Alpdiaz on his own ahead of Eno, having dropped Eno, and dropped him, he may be attacked, he may be punched or something. So I don't know whether that was a, a rational fear or just, again, Le Mans anxiety, you could call it paranoia, I just don't know. But they did ride up together and it looked as though you know, an agreement had been reached between them again, but at the finish, the, the post-race discussion programme on French Telly, they appeared together there, you know, in Le Mans, and Eno had a, a white towel wrapped around his neck. He was drinking a bottle of beer. He looked brilliant. Le Mans sitting beside him just looks like a, a schoolboy. He looks kind of like a rabbit in headlights. And Eno, again, he's quite slouched in the, in the chair. And having apparently buried the hatchet, Eno just then started the mind games all over again. He 
there's a quite a big crowd and they're chanting Eno, Eno. And Eno says, I thought Greg learned a lot again today. I only hope the strongest man wins this tour. And the, the host, Jack Chancel, says, you're going to fight one another? And Eno says, the tour is not finished. There could be a crash. Many things can happen. But if we have a war, it will be a fair war and a stronger one will win. And Chancel then turns to Le Mans and asks, so you'll be a force to attack? Le Mans says, but I don't want to attack, and sort of laughs nervously. Why would I attack? I could have attacked last year as well. And Eno is just sitting there looking kind of very pleased with himself and quite, quite smug. And Chancel kind of goads him and says, you're only two minutes away from Le Mans. You can catch him. And Eno says, I don't know. We'll see. Rolling Stone magazine said that at that point. Le Mans turned ashen. And that, that is accurate. I mean, Le Mans looked as if he'd been handed his Christmas present and had it taken away again. He, he just, he, he, he was in the yellow jersey. He had a decent lead over his teammate, but he knew that there were kind of going to be more twists and turns in the road ahead. And he just couldn't trust Eno at this point. And he was scared of him. The paranoia was real though, wasn't it? Because he'd resorted to cooking his own food. He was taking other riders' feed bags because of fear of sabotage. Mm. And he, he told you that one rider had said that they'd offered to crash into him so Eno could win the race. And then, incredibly, the day after the outdoor stage, Eno attacks again in the feed zone, trampling all over another yeah. unwritten rules. It was just astonishing. Yeah, again, there, there are two ways of looking at it. Was Eno, um, Eno's pledge was to, to help Le Mans win the tour, but not by lying down for him. I guess he was taking that to its logical conclusion and to the end of the race. I mean, there, was still, there were still a few hard days left after Alpuez. It wasn't all done and dusted at Alpuez. But yeah, Le Mans was warned, he says, by the tour director as well, that they couldn't guarantee his safety or that he wouldn't end up being given a spike bottle or something like that. So his paranoia, it's hard to know what was real and what, what was in his imagination. Mm. But he was right to be a little bit fearful, but perhaps not right to be as quite paranoid as he was. But the stories about, you know, why he's being offered money crash into Le Mans. They were all pretty and widely documented and accepted as, as true at the time. Um, yeah. So that was the race. And here you are now with the idea yeah. of a book. Were both men keen to talk to you? I didn't establish that before writing the proposal. If they don't talk to you, then that becomes a part of the story, really. So I did the proposal and I kind of knew what, what book I wanted to do. And I definitely wanted to meet with both of them but I didn't know if that would happen. And they, they both were, well, ironically, Eno was really easy to, to pin down. And Le Monde is really hard. Not because Le Monde didn't want to do it, but because Le Monde is, is just a hard person to pin down. Once you get him, he's absolutely fantastic. And I, I, went, I went to see Eno with my friend and colleague, Daniel Freed. Uh, we went to Brittany and went to his farm. And I just got there uncomfortably early and didn't really know what to do. And it was a very austere house you know there were no real there were no trophies no pictures there was a, a clock that we could get taken throughout it was very very you know and Le Mans, when i went to see him completely opposite you know a very warm house family house in minnesota they were living at the time and i i walked into their house and i was greeted by you know about five dogs came in and just sort of clambering all over me and then Le Mans appeared Quite in a quite shambolic fashion. Um, Cassie so asking if you wanted to shower and a bike ride. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the first time I'd met Cathy, I think. I'd met Lamont before. 
she especially was so warm and so welcoming. And I've become quite friendly with Kathy and Greg and all the things since then. And they're just fantastic people, really nice people. Whereas Eno, Eno would not, you know, having spent time in his house, Eno could walk past him in the street and not, not oh, remember really? that at all. I, I went and gave Eno a copy of the book after it came out and he, he literally took it, looked at it and then threw it into the car that he'd be traveling in uh, on the Tour de France that day. He's just quite gruff. You know, there are no sort of niceties. There's no, there's none of that warmth that the man had at all. I was going to, my final question was going to be, did they like the book? But given that Bernard just chucked it into the back of his car, <laughs> kind of <laughs> answers the question in a way. How do they both remember the events and, and each other's role in them? I mean, for Eno, it was just, you know, this is what happened, very black or white. There was no racking his brain to remember details. It's just almost like the events happen, they leave an imprint in his brain, and then that's it. It remains untouched. And he can then just sort of recall it and tell you as he remembers it. Le Mans, the conversation more meandering, more, you know, there are more caveats, more deviations, a lot of deviations. That's why that tour is so interesting, and that's why the sport is so interesting, because the Tour de France does reveal character. And here you had complete opposite characters going against each other and in the same team. And they, they revealed each other's character. They were like a mirror being held up to one another. So, yeah, very, very different. And as I say, I've no idea what you know thought of the book, but he did, again, happily agree to go into for the, the film that was made afterwards, the documentary film, which is one of the ESPN 30 for 30. And Le Mans too, again, <laughs> on that occasion, he was easy to condemn because he'd just broken his back and he was in a neck brace, so he was confined at home. And he was, he was great. And I remember when the book came out, I sent a copy to Le Mans and I got a very nice email from Cathy just saying she really enjoyed it and, and was, you know, grateful that it had been done the way that it was done and so on. Although, you know, certainly it's a complicated story, but there's not an obvious goodie or baddie. It's not that at all. I don't think either as the baddie in this story and Le Mans is a goodie. It's far more complicated than that. But, yeah, the Le Mans, they seem quite happy with the, with the book when it came out and the film that followed. You split the book into two parts, the backstory of both of their stories and then the story of the race itself. How and when did you write it? Was it all in one go or did you need to write sort of part one to help you inform part two? Yeah, I think so. I, I write. I like to write in chronological order and in the order that it will appear in the book, even if there is a bit of going back and forth. So I can't remember when I hit upon that idea of, of breaking it into two parts, but I think after I'd done most of the interviews, that just seemed the obvious thing to do. I did do it all in one go. I mean, I was working on it for a couple of years, I suppose, because I, I was working on a couple of other projects at the same time. But it was always something that I was working on in the background. And the main thing was to get around and do as many interviews as I could. And there, wasn't, there weren't many people I didn't get to that I wanted to get to. There were some that were very elusive, like Paul Coakley, who I mentioned. I didn't get to Bernard Tappy. I did try to get to Bernard Tappy. But Coffley was, was very elusive, and he promised me an interview at his remote house in Switzerland in the, in the mountains. But he refused to really commit to a date, and um, he gave me a sort of window of three days. When I finally got an email, I, I was told that I could visit him only after dark. That's how it was put, not, not a time, but after dark. And I set off in my tiny little, you know, Mr. Bean-style hire car, rental car, over these 
pretty treacherous roads and it began snowing and snowing really heavily and I was kind of crawling over these roads thinking this is crazy and it was getting dark and when it got properly dark I went and rang on his doorbell and was shown in to this incredible house slash kind of performance lab funny man and, and, and gave me a great interview with lots of brilliant quotes you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend is how he described the strategy in 86 and he then gave me dinner and you know was very hospitable and set me off eventually to drive over these snowy mountains back to Bezan so came away from it really excited because I felt I've got so much here and this guy hasn't really given an interview for 20 odd years about this mm. year, so I had lots of experiences like that where I was able to get interviews with people and just feel sort of hands trembling as I downloaded the interview making sure it recorded properly and it was just yeah it was very enjoyable from that point of view and I, I love that you know, it, felt, it felt sort of historical, but very nostalgic for me as well. I bet. And I suppose the book is a flashback, isn't it, to that era where there were no helmets, no radios, as you mentioned. Mm. It was still part of, I suppose, the modern era of cycling, but prior to the EPO era, there were lots of attacking. Mm. You still mm. had the magic of a team like La Vie Claire, which sort of even now sort of stands for something special. And I've seen that era sort of legislated nostalgia is a great term. Yeah, there's so much to love about it. They, they looked great. I mean, the, the Lavi Claire kit, I would argue, is the best cycling kit of all time. Absolutely um, the best of all time. That was one of the great, exciting revelations of my meeting with Paul Coakley, actually, because he said that when they set up the team, Bernard Tappy commissioned a, a design agency in Paris, some very high-end design agency, come up with a, a kit that would, that would shock the world that nobody had seen before. And they went to Paris for this presentation and they were they were presented with something that looked very similar to the All Blacks kit. It was an All Black kit and that was immediately rejected. No cycling team would ever wear a black kit. Well, they did eventually with Team Sky, of course, but 25 years later. At the time, a kind of lowly assistant in this design studio came up with their own suggestion that would be based on a Mondrian painting. And that was the kit that they chose. And the Mondrian kit is amazing and it was really ahead of its time the kit Le Monde was ahead of its time I and mean, in that tour both Eno and Le Monde had clipless pedals they were the first riders to ride with clipless pedals Le Monde was the first rider to have customized cycling sunglasses they had concealed brake cables you know in the past the brake cables kind of sprouted out the, the brake levers and so the bikes were beginning to far more resemble the bikes that we have now you know, I think the difference between 86 and now in some ways and 86 and 84 is far less. Uh, I think that 86 tour, especially with Eno and Le Mans, you've got two riders who really look modern. There's never going to be another Eno versus Le Mans. Is I know we've sort of had, you know, you have Contador versus Armstrong in 2009 and I suppose Froome, Wiggins and, and perhaps whenever the, the 2020 Tour de France happens with, with Froome and Egan Bernal and, and potentially Geraint Thomas as well. But just everything that encapsulated that 86 Tour will almost certainly never happen again, will it, given everything that went down? In a way, because cycle racing isn't the same as it was back in 86. The more I think about this, the more I'm struck by how unusual Eno was as a yeah. cycling champion. I, I don't know if you've watched the, the recent Lance Armstrong I haven't yet, no. In that, there's a really interesting point that's made by Floyd Landis, that mm. Lance Armstrong, I mean, so there are a lot of cyclists interviewed in that in that show, and they're all they're all introverted. They're all quiet. 
and not they're not the A-type personalities that Armstrong was. And, and Landis said, you've got to appreciate just how unusual Lance Armstrong was for a cyclist. And that's partly why he was able to get away with what he did, his personality, his charisma. And I thought that's absolutely true. Most cyclists are introverts and they are loners and they are not these kind of very confident personalities. And Eno was, I mean, Eno, I think, is, is the closest to Lance Armstrong in personality. You know, even some of the other great champions, Eddie Merckx was, was not that type of personality at all. Mm. Eno was, and he was able to bend races to his will. You know, he was like a sort of mafia boss in a way. And so was Armstrong. And so for that sort of confrontation to happen, you need another personality like Eno, awful and really appealing. <laughs> yeah. And it's why we're still so fascinated by Lance Armstrong, because we're, we're sort of fascinated by his personality. Your final quote in the book is this, all this cycling stuff that's in the past, Eno shrugs, there's no point in dredging it all up. Did they ever settle things? Well, yeah, because again, that's again, that's a really perfect Eno quote. He lives in the moment. That applies to now too. The ease with which he transitioned from being a bike rider to going through time was quite remarkable. He'd made up his mind several years earlier that he would retire on his 32nd birthday in 1986. And he was still at his best. He was only 32, you know. But he'd made that decision and he was going to stick to it. You know, once his mind was made up, that was it. You know, stopped being a cyclist in November 1986 and he became a farmer. And that was it. There was no reflection, no, didn't seem to be any kind of moments of self-doubt about that whatsoever. And then he became involved again in the Tour de France as a sort of ambassador. And then he decided to stop doing that as well. And he said, the only... The, you only see me at the Tour de France now at the side of the road with my grandchild. And Eno is just very, there's no prevarication, there's no ambiguity with Eno at all. So he never held a grudge against Le Monde. So Le Monde, I think, had to work through a lot of stuff himself. And I think his relationship with Eno became easier when Lance Armstrong became his bigger enemy. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Armstrong acted in a way towards Le Monde that was on a whole different mm. scale in badness to, to what Eno did in a, in a bike race. And so there's a lovely picture in the book of the two of them in 2008, I think it is, yeah, chatting. And Eno would always have been open to Le Monde coming up and having a chat and being friendly. But Le Monde perhaps not so much to Eno. And I think it probably took that long for Le Monde to put Eno's behaviour towards him in a slightly different perspective. And now I think you know, even when I went to see him and interview him about it, when he relived that tour, some of that anxiety and stress and anger did come to the surface. But there was also an awful lot of, you know, kind of fond reminiscences about Eno as well. I always get the impression that Eno is in his farmhouse in Brittany, and there's a part of him that thinks that even though he lost that 86 Tour de France that somewhere, because he almost called the tune of the entire race, somewhere he believes that he won it. He decided he, the outcome. Yeah, he way. decided the outcome of the race. I think that's true, yeah. I don't think he could have raced it any other way. So I'm not sure there was an awful lot of thought that went into that. It was almost just a, an instinct that he had. But again, I don't think there'd be much reflection at all anyway. I don't think he does reflect at all. I think he lives just in and for the moment. And so... The most important thing to Eno, as we speak now, is probably if he's still running a working farm, I'm not sure if he is, but you know, what's happening with the cows or 
you know, or, or what, what's in his diary for the next day, or, you know. Again, it was when Daniel freed, um, phoned him up to arrange a, an interview, there was no questioning of or interest in what our project was. <laughs> it was just, hi, Bernard, would it be possible for us to come and interview you about 1986 to France? Yes, when? How about early December? December the 8th? Great, yeah, what time? 10 a.m. See you then. Bye. <laughs> that was pretty much it. That was it. There was no interest at all in what we were doing or why we were doing it. It was just, you know, <laughs> refreshingly uncomplicated. Maybe that's the best description of Bernardino, refreshingly uncomplicated in a way. You know, it's possible to look at his behavior or the way he rode that 86 tour as just Bernardino being Bernardino. I'm not sure there was a master plan behind it, really. Yeah. But, but Le Mans was convinced there was. And, and maybe that's at the heart of it, is that misunderstanding between them. I don't know. Bernard definitely <laughs> attacked, he attacked the grey area though, didn't he, a little bit? Yeah, but then I wonder if, you know, if Le Mans had been the one to do that and take the initiative, then Eno might have written it in a completely different way and saluted that and supported yeah. that and understood it better. It's an incredible story of an incredible race. Richard Moore, thank you very much indeed for sharing it. Thank you, Simon. Uh, Richard's book, Slaying the Badger, is available in bookshops and online, and you can watch an adaptation of it on ESPN as part of its 30 for 30 series. That's it for episode 11 of Sports Pages. Don't forget to listen back to last week's show with Christopher McDougall on his story of murder, drug cartels, the greatest runners on the planet, and a 50-mile race through Mexico's Copper Canyon. It's the classic Born to Run. Thanks again to Richard. I'll be back next Tuesday with the first novel of the series, so we'll see you in seven days' time.